This episode of Medic Mindset is supported by iSimulate. From the very beginnings of this podcast, I've been committed to keeping Medic Mindset always and forever free. Their support allows me to do that. Thank you, iSimulate. Eventually, these people are going to be pushed to crazy extremes and all of a sudden the skies will clear. And I've always wondered how must that feel when you've got, when you've gone to an extreme and then like the lights are flicked on and everything returns to normal. It's like, now you've got to explain what you did in an extreme moment to people who are not, uh, to people who are in a very calm state. I find that endlessly fascinating. And they do a wonderful job almost from the moment that the show starts of building this dread in you because you know something is coming. And the way they do it is like showing you all the vulnerabilities. There's the rain and the wind beating on the windows. And somebody says, this hospital is three feet below sea level. Our generators, our water, our medicine, all these pets are being kept in the basement. I mean, there's this uh, phrase that sort of looms in the background, which is, you know, nobody's coming to save you. Again, like a very EMS. And I think my wife was ready to stab me in the neck because I kept turning to her and saying, this is it. This is what it feels like. You want to know what it's like on an ambulance? It's that. And the reason for it is there is no help, even though they don't know it yet without a doubt. It's becoming clear. They don't have enough people. They don't have enough equipment. And when I say equipment, I mean everything, right? Like from medicine on down to electricity. They don't have any idea of what they're going to do when the worst comes. And it's clear that the worst is coming. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. The first time I heard this guest's voice was around the time I launched the podcast in 2016. He was a guest on NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, and his name is Kevin Hazard. He's the well-known EMS author of A Thousand Naked Strangers, where he recounts memories from a decade of working for Grady EMS in Atlanta. And in this interview on NPR, I remember him saying this quote. He said, there are a lot of situations, referring to EMS, there are a lot of situations where it's just not practical to wait for it to be completely safe. And you got to just try to weigh the odds. With that quote, I knew he'd be a guest well-matched for Medic Mindset because he understood the gray in which decisions are made in EMS. In this episode today, Kevin and I reflect on a TV show based on a book called Five Days at Memorial. In this story, the characters are faced with impossible challenges inside a hospital in the days after Katrina. There are so many parallels between what they experienced and what out-of-hospital paramedics are presented with every day. I hope you'll listen to the end as Kevin answers the question, would you want either of your books, A Thousand Naked Strangers, or his upcoming book, American Sirens, which is releasing in September, to be adapted for TV? His answer tells you where his heart is, as he writes as one of our most trusted authors representing the EMS profession. Here's my chat with Kevin. Five Days at Memorial is based on a book, and it's a book written by Sherry Fink, who is a journalist who also went to medical school. Now, she's an MD, and in 2010, she won a Pulitzer Prize for her investigative reporting in the New York Times Magazine about this story. The story, uh, as it's portrayed in the Apple TV production, kind of zooms in probably like her book. I've not read it, but I know you have. It zooms into the events inside Memorial Hospital in New Orleans, late August 2005, in the days after Katrina. The events kind of end up being a microcosm of these broad events that were happening in the failures of emergency response to that event. The portrayal on screen, I assume in the book as well, is really granular level at looking at very personal stories and looking at their decisions under pressure in a low-resource environment. You've read the book. How did Apple TV do at translating that book to screen? Well, I mean, on the one hand, I mean, they had a softball, didn't they? Like, mm. this is maybe the ultimate story. I mean, when you read the book, it is so cinematic. Part of what Sherry Fink does a great job of, and her reporting is incredible, and her access is incredible, and in that she got these people to trust her and open up to her to the degree that they did is pretty remarkable. 
part of what she did such a great job of was pluck these people from these incredible moments and just drop them down. You're sort of sucked in behind them from start to finish. You're in their shoes and like watching the show in a way that a book can't quite do as much as I hate to say that. <laughs> Part of what makes this so great to watch is you're terrified because they they do a wonderful job of presenting all of the terrors that probably were going through people's minds long before they even realized how bad the situation was going to get. Her book is fantastic because it absolutely, you know, sort of <laughs> sucks you down to the bottom of very deep water. And that's what you get when you when you start watching the show. I mean, one of the first things that really struck me is the storm outside the hospital. Everybody, I, I didn't know this, and I'm, I'm sure most people didn't know it, but you know, evidently in New Orleans, among the places you go, if you have the ability during a hurricane, or at least was uh, before all this, was Memorial. So you have all these people who are in there, whether they're patients, family members, staff, or just, you know, some dude off the street who wandered in with his dog. People brought their pets. The portrayal says there were 1,200 additional people that were just hanging out. Just hanging out, which doesn't that really feel like a public hospital? I mean, that's exactly what you envision these resources to be. I mean, you know, even when they're not in extremis, it feels as if that's kind of where the city congregates. So you have all these people that are in there, which makes you feel claustrophobic and cluttered and a little uptight anyhow. And then outside their window, the rain is just beating on the glass. You know, the wind is hitting it. And you're kind of wondering, like, is this building, like, does this building actually have the ability to withstand this? You know, because it's showing, you know, moments where the roof is being ripped off the dome and you're seeing signs flying around and, and sort of homes be battered and trees are, you know, at this sort of like 45 degree angle. And then you cut to the inside the hospital where people are trying to have as normal a conversation as they can or as normal of a, of a day on the floor as they can. And outside their window, I mean, there's this monster trying to get in. It's very, very, I mean, my hands were sweating from the get-go. And I, I just, I loved that. So I loved that they were able to capture the fear that people probably felt before they had any sense that this thing was going to get as bad as it ultimately got. Um, so that was a very first thing that hit me. D did you feel that? Like it was, was, was that just in my head or, or was that a universal? I did feel it. And something that they did that was really, I hate to say the, the word enjoyable for me, they use CGI to show things like the levees breaking, as you said, pulling off that water protective barrier off the dome. It looks like drone-like images of things that we've imagined in our head, but never really been able to put to actual images. And I really enjoyed that being able to just have a concrete image of things I've only imagined. Yeah. Well, you don't, you're, you're not sitting there in a storm and watching it. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe there's footage, but you're certainly not like out on the street, you know, kind of watching this thing unfold. And so I just thought they did a fantastic job of portraying this sort of slow approaching menace that's coming your way. That I, I, I love. I liked also the way that the, the characters are, are established. One of the tricky things about trying to tell a story is introducing people to these characters in a way that gets them to care about them while also not stagnating the story. I mean, how many times do you hear someone say, yeah, the show gets great after the first season, or you got to just get through the first three episodes. And the reason for that is like, there's a certain amount of pipe that needs to be laid. If you go back to the history of human beings, we relate to one another through stories. Our entire history is told through stories. And long before there was anything written down, we were speaking it to one another. There are certain rhythms and guideposts that need to be hit along the way. And if you do them, there's something sort of in our DNA that reacts to that. The hero's journey and poetics um, and all these other, all these, you know, books throughout history. The reason why people still go to them is because there is something about the story that sort of sucks us in. And what, at its essence, it is this person who we can relate to going through a challenge and trying to decide, like, 
is the, <laughs> is this journey, is this fight going to be worth what I will have to put into it? That's kind of what you, you know, like every show, every movie, that is what we respond to is, is, is these people that we're able to see some version of ourselves in, whether it's a version we like or a version we don't, and kind of wonder like, how would we be in that situation? Or, or I know, you know, because I go through this kind of situation, but that requires a certain degree of like, you know, you've got to introduce us to these people and you got to make, find a way to make us care about these people. And we've all seen it now so many times that there are moments in a show and I'm sure everyone, you know, I, I, I roll my eyes because I, I spent enough time writing that, you know, when it's done sloppily, you can, you know, you can see the inner workings and you don't, mm-hmm. you don't ever want to, you know, it's like music. You want to just hear the music. You don't want to, you know, hear the work that goes into it. And sometimes, you know, somebody will do something in the beginning of a pilot and you're like, oh, all right, I see what you're trying to establish that mm-hmm. this, you know, that this guy, <laughs> you know, he, this was the one thing that never worked out for him. And so like, that's going to be his recurring, you know, and you, you see that, but they really did a great job of covering the mechanisms. I thought like you, you, you just get plunged into this thing. There are a bunch of characters. It could very easily be bewildering because of all the stuff that's going on. And yet it's not like it right away. You're, you're with them and you're, you're right there at high level. I read that book years ago. I don't remember it, you know, page for page. I was right there as a viewer. Back to this idea of yours of creating characters that we can either identify with or not like, whichever, or within the same character, you know, we identify with some parts and don't like other parts. And one of the things I found myself asking myself this whole time, you know, especially as I start to develop or begin to think about an emergency plan that's very reactive instead of proactive is the very quintessential question of like, what would I have been doing during this time? And that's a really fun self-exploration to think about how would I've handled that? Yeah. Who do you see yourself as? You know, are you the new guy who's horrified by how this hospital system conducts itself, even in the midst of an emergency? Are you the older guy with a pistol in his pocket? Are you the the incident commander who is sort of thrust into charge and really feels the weight of it? Or are you this doctor who's very empathetic and probably knows deep down that whatever's going to happen, you, you'll be the last person to blink because you feel you owe it to your patients. Like who amongst those people are you? Are you a little bit of all of them? Um, so when you first started asking that question, I thought you were ask, actually asking me and not just being rhetorical. And I instantly knew which character I was. How about you? Uh, yeah. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> I think we all know who we are. Who are you? I identified with the instant commander. She was the nursing director that got just like kind of thrown into this role. Her name's Susan Mulderick, played by Cherry Jones. I identified with her because every one was turning to her and saying, well, you're the incident commander, you know, what are we going to do? And that's a very paramedic experience. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I think there are probably two people, depending on your point of view, who can be seen as villains in the story or as heroes. I think the new doctor can be a, a hero or a villain. And I think the guy with the pistol can be one of the two. I identify with the guy with the pistol. Um, and that illuminates so many uh, unflattering parts of my personality. But I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, I'm a romantic. And, you know, I, I worked at a large public hospital that top to bottom had flaws, but I loved it. I loved everything about it. I love the fact that it was not like tenant or other um, hospital systems, that it was different, that it was unique, that it had quirks and flaws and, and you know, these wonderful gifts that it had to give to the world and that people loved it because I identified on a personal level with this place. Despite all of its problems, I would get very, I was very quick to jump to its defense. And so I'm a person who honors tradition and as a romantic, like things like that kind of come to me. In terms of actual medicine, I think we all agree that like you need to be constantly, you know, like the whole evidence-based approach is the thing we need to be doing. And and so there's that other part of me that's like sort of saying like, hey, just because it's how we've always done it doesn't mean it's how it should be done. And I subscribe to that. But yet, deep down, I'm that person who's like, but but this is so great. Um, so I yeah, I identify with that guy. Like I know how, he, he, he doesn't intend to be bad. You know, they say uh, – Every villain is a hero of his own story. Mm-hmm. There's this 
phrase that you hear in um, in writing. It's called uh, Chekhov's gun. And the idea is, uh, Chekhov once said, if you introduce a gun in the first act, it had better go off in the third act. I mean, you cannot tease people. You can't, you can't bring something out into the world and then not deliver on it. And so when that pistol shows up, you have to assume that at some point it's going to come back out again. I don't imagine that when he put that pistol in his lab coat, that his intention was to do something wrong with it. He probably thought like, I understand the realities of the situation. This could get bad. And if it does, I'm going to stand up for my patients slash staff slash family slash dog, which is in the basement of the hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, You know what I mean? And that may go badly for him. This might not be (laughs) the right time to have a gun in your pocket. And yet his intentions were probably good. So I, I totally identify with him, even though we know that, you know, trouble is afoot. We do know, but I don't actually know what trouble. So I assume the gun is for outsiders, but we'll see. Like I, you've read the book, I've not. So we'll see in the upcoming episodes what becomes of that, that gun. So my favorite quote, there are many good quotes in the, uh, the first three episodes, uh, but one that I actually wrote down was, so there's a character whose mom is at Memorial. He is safe at home on dry land. And he wants to get to her. Luckily, his wife happens to be a paramedic professor, which I thought was pretty cool. And they they go to a fire station just Nobody trying those people. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to get some type of access to get down to the to the hospital. One of the things he says, I believe he says it to his wife, is that because she's trying to say, no, like your mom's safe at the hospital, they're gonna be fine. And he says, without power. It's not a hospital. It's just a building. Yeah. And I think that is kind of the moment that you realize these people aren't working as hospital staff anymore. They're just survivors or people that are trying to work with what they've got, which is so EMS. Work with what you've got. Yeah. I mean, there's this uh, phrase that sort of looms in the background, which is, you know, nobody's coming to save you, which again, like a very EMS feeling. That was my thought right away. And I think my wife was ready to stab me in the neck because I kept turning to her and saying, this is it. This is what it feels like. You want to know what it's like on an ambulance? It's that. And the reason for it is there is no help, even though they don't know it yet without a doubt, it's becoming clear. They don't have enough people. They don't have enough equipment. And when I say equipment, I mean everything, right? Like from medicine on down to electricity. They don't have any idea of what they're going to do when the worst comes. And it's clear that the worst is coming. I mean, and for everybody who's ever showed up to a bariatric patient with a very minor complaint, you've walked out the door saying, you know what? Someday that dude's not going to have a minor complaint. And he's on the third floor of a small house and we have no real way to get him down. And everybody knows it. And we're going to have to remove our stretcher and the antlers and just lay him on a tarp on the floor and watch him suffocate in his CHF and mm-hmm. no matter, like no amount of complaining or yelling right now is going to change that. Like there will not be a solution for this. And yet it's coming. We all know it's coming and we're just going to watch it. It felt so EMS. And I just, not that there's, you know, Schadenfreude necessarily involved in it, but I did keep looking at these actors slash doctors thinking, that's it. Like now you know what it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know? This is the feeling. This is it. <laughs> this is why there's not an 18 gauge in that patient um, because we had to do all this first. Uh, and I, I love that. I, I, you know, it's, it's exciting and terrifying, but yet also like really gratifying to see like, yeah, this is, this is what people do every day. Yeah. Maybe now you get it. <laughs> yeah, probably not, but mm. I, I, I do love that aspect of it. And, uh, I've never really gotten into, despite the fact that I helped write one, watched um, or gotten into watching medical dramas because once people are in the hospital, it's just a different world and I don't relate to it as well. And the things that um, really drew me in um, are absent, all those factors. And so, you know, part of the joy of watching this is to be able to see it. And I called one of my partners afterward because he had not yet seen it. You know, he said like, Hey, watch an episode, tell me if it's worth it. Cause you know, like many people, he does not have every single streamer. You know, I have a couple 
most people have a couple. And if something comes on, you're like, hey, I'll, sure, I'll subscribe for a month and watch this show and then unsubscribe. So he wanted to know if it was worth watching. And I said, uh, you know, I would talk to him about this aspect of it. And I said, do you remember showing up to work and checking off the truck, putting a check mark down next to traction splint because it was physically present, but knowing full well, like a traction <laughs> splint is not going to work. You know, if somebody gets hit by a car on a rainy day and I'm crouched in the street trying to do this, this thing, I can just tell this thing is not going to work. And that's the feeling you have from this is you mentioned the name of the uh, incident commander who, who you. Yeah. In real life, it's Susan Mulderick. And then it was played by Cherry Jones. Yeah. So the Cherry Jones slash Susan Mulderick woman, when she goes back through that book, uh, it's like the, you know, the incident preparedness guide or whatever, like what to do in case of, and she flips to flood and evacuation in the case of flood. And as it turns out, you know, spoiler, they did not have a plan for what to do if this hospital floods, it needs to be evacuated. And that, oh, that realization, I mean, oh, you, you can, you can feel it. Like, well, what do we do? No one has any idea. And she says there's hundreds of pages about bioterrorism. Right. But like they're in New Orleans, so the most likely thing to happen <laughs> is not covered. And I think that's also that conjured up this idea of, you know, the the bread and butter call, EMS calls. We have tons of protocols for like these really high acuity, elaborate procedures, but then the majority of our calls are psych and mental mental health crisis or mm-hmm. you know generalized sickness for which there's zero plan. <laughs> hundred percent. It's like how many services have a bariatric stretcher at their disposal? Should one really be needed? Um, and yet you're right. There's, there's something I, I remember we did this drill for nuclear bombs and everybody was like, we're all going to be melting by this point. <laughs> you know, like, do we need this drill? I'd rather somebody tell me what to do with my 800 pounder who, by the way, is like across the street right now, you know, walking right. up and down stairs. Like, you know, that's going to be an issue at some point. Yeah, that uh, that fear, you know, the sort of the unknown of like, what do we do? What exactly is coming our way? How do we handle it? Can we handle it? No, we can't handle it. So what are we going to do? It, it's, it's just like a constant cycle. It's like a, a hamster wheel of terrible things. And they're stuck in it. And man, I both identified with it and just like <laughs> shuddered the whole time watching it. On day three, they finally decide... We're going to evacuate some people. So day three is episode three. And I, I'm cool with giving spoilers. Well, hey, here's a spoiler. Uh, storm comes, big winds, <laughs> big water, no power. Uh, Levy's Folks break. are dying. Yeah. <laughs> so when they finally decide, okay, maybe we should get these people out of here, they go and check out the landing pad. And this, I think this is my favorite scene. By far. Yes, yes. They can't use the elevator to get up there because no power. So they're walking up these rickety stairs to get up there. And the idea is they're going up there to just inspect the integrity of this thing because it hasn't been used in over a decade, which was interesting to me. Like no helicopters coming in or out of that hospital for over a decade. Very strange. I don't understand why. I I wish they could have gotten into why. Mm -hmm. So they go up there. It takes forever, like multiple flights of rusted metal stairs. They're all sweaty. Three kind of, they seem like techs or something. And they get up there and they find corrosion. And there just happens to be this National Guard or U.S. (laughs) Army helicopter flying by. One of the characters just starts waving at the helicopter, just kind of like happy to see an outsider, basically, because they've been so isolated for three days. And the helicopter takes that to mean they need help. Then he starts doing this universal waving of his arms, like, don't land. But it looks like the classic EMS flagger outside of a house, like flagging an ambulance down. And that was a great portrayal because it shows kind of this disparity between hospital workers and out-of-hospital workers because he did not realize what he was doing. Not in the slightest. And it is beautiful how he... He has this sort of goofy, childlike smile mm-hmm. on his face when he sees the helicopter, which we've all worked with that dude yep. who is screaming to the radio like, launch the bird, launch the bird. <laughs> and when the helicopter arrives, not only fawns over the helicopter medics, but it's like, hey, can I get a pen? Do you guys have a sticker? 
you know, and is just so excited about those guys and uh, uh, just sort of like, you know, falls over himself to, to come. So he, you know, like you recognize that, but yeah, you're right. I didn't even think about it. He, he, he does like strike you as a flagger and it, it shows the difference between what's going on outside and what's going on inside. And it's worth noting inside the hospital, there's this idea of like a help is imminent. And of course the national guard is well aware of what their limitations are. And they're well aware of the situation because they're out in it. And these people in the hospital are sort of sequestered. And, and to a degree, by this point, the levees have broken, which by the way, like what a beautiful scene. What what a horrible, terrifying, wonderful scene. And the water is coming, but they don't know it. So they're, they're still you know, kind of protected by the walls of this hospital and don't realize just how dire it is. And the, the uh, National Guard lands, the desperation in the voice of this National Guard pilot or crew member tells you right away, like, oh my God, this is really bad out there. Because they've certainly by now, they've seen the, the Ninth Ward, like they're aware of what's happening. You know, his panic and like, you've got to hurry. You've got two seconds and I can take one person. You know, they've got hundreds and I can take a single. And then what follows, uh, I know is, is like part of maybe every EMS provider's nightmare. They, this guy turns around and he runs back down, you know, all 819 rickety <laughs> steps, which they show creaking beneath him. And my gosh, if you don't, if you don't identify with rickety, with a jillion rickety stairs, um, but and you know how hot he probably is because if you've been to New Orleans and there's post-storm, all that water, the humidity, you can just imagine. He runs down a million flights of stairs, gets into the hospital, finds somebody and says they can just take one. So, of course, they say, well, go to the, go to the PICU or the NICU, whichever it is. I guess it's probably the NICU, judging by the size of these babies, and take one. And so they, this group of nurses rushes out with a single NICU child inside an incubator who they're manually ventilating. So now like, this is it, right? Like we've done this, this, you've had this patient who's tiny and fragile and you are, you had to disconnect them from their vent so you can get them into your rig and you're in the back of the truck or worse, you're trying to get out of the house or in an apartment complex with stairs and you're going down these stairs, you're going up these stairs, across the parking lot, do, 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 everything's bouncing and moving. And you're just praying like, please, God, do not let this tube dislodge on this tiny little child. Then they reach the steps and they've got to carry this kid up all these stairs and they keep stopping to ventilate them. And I mean, it is, it is so emblematic of how bad things had gotten and people did not yet realize how bad it was in the hospital. And I think that was kind of their first moment. And as a viewer, it's our first moment, which gets back to what you and I were saying in the beginning of what they do so wonderful. And you, you brought up the, the idea of them taking this granular approach, like you're with them. So though we know intellectually what's going to happen and we're aware of, of how Katrina unfolds, we're not in that. We're just in the hospital. And it's not until that moment that it becomes clear to everybody, us included, just how bad the situation is. So going back to me identifying with the incident commander, <laughs> That was another. Are you saying that you bring your mom everywhere you go? <laughs> Why did she have? I guess she had her mom there to shelter her. I guess, yeah. Her mom is kind of a kooky. That character gives me the heebie-jeebies. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. The, the shoulder rubs and the. I know. Like I can't tell the, if she has dementia because oh. she's like kind of disheveled and in, in, in a bathrobe. It's a little. I don't know. She throws me off that mom. Well, I assume she's going to die, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many quotes kind of directed at the incident commander. People asking her, you know, what does the emergency manual say? Well, you're the IC. Uh, if there's something we should be doing, it's your call. When the levees break and the U.S. Army finally makes it to the hospital to tell them this, like face-to-face is how they get this information that they believe. Um, they, you know, they say, you know, activate your emergency plan. And they have to say publicly to these these people we don't have a plan finally at one point she she when people keep saying well you're the incident commander finally she says why do people keep saying that to me right like quit quit saying that to me it really felt reminiscent of the kind of uh, not passing of the buck but but at the end of the day on a on an EMS call there's one person that's going to have to answer for the decisions made 
and that's often a paramedic, and kind of wanting from her a singular answer uh, rather than like a committee. And I identified with that, and I think a lot of other paramedics would too. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, you're you're reading in that situation. I think is dead on. Um, I think a lot of people you can identify with the conundrum she's in because on the one hand, on an emergency scene, if you do not take command, then three people have taken command. And that's the first thing I learned about the fire department is someone on that engine who shows up is going to take charge if you don't. Mm-hmm. And as a person who never worked for a fire department, um, I always, I don't think I've immediately understood their mindset. So initially I was like, well, you know, we're the ambulance, we're in charge and nominally (laughs) we are. But if you don't state that and then back that statement up with I'm in charge type action, then firefighters are like, well, no, now we're in charge. You know, it's like, who's the captain? I'm the captain. So on the one hand, a single person, a single voice saying, hey, this is what we're doing. Critical. But in a situation like that, I know you're shying away from passing of the buck, but I mean, like no other hospital administrator wants to make a decision when they start dealing with the hospital, their corporate headquarters, those people don't want anything to do with this. The only ones who have any ideas even happening is like a single dude in business development who's the wrong person, but at least he's trying. And, but everybody around him is like, yeah, well, whatever. Like, not our problem. Yeah, it someone out. actually told him. So he's getting these emails from a desperate person asking for air evacuation. I kind of got the impression that multiple people. She was just broadcasting, emailing. Multiple people were getting these emails. He was the only one. At, to your point about heroes, he was the only one that just decided somebody's got to address this. And so he went to a superior who tells him, "Yeah, just like forward that email on." <laughs> that was so corporate, like dis- uh, disconnect from our kind of at a hospital EMS world. Yes. I mean, that, boy, that, that moment hit hard. That whole, uh, that whole sequence where he's trying to get someone to listen to him because he's getting these desperate calls for help. Everybody's ignoring it. And he's kind of picked up on the fact that, Hey, something's really wrong here and somebody needs to do something. He's sort of sucked into this, you know, he's, he's a bystander who made eye contact with, you know, the crazy guy in the street, like don't make eye contact because now you're, now you're involved. Mm, Um, mm -hmm. He's kind of the person who made eye contact and is now involved and is trying to do something. Everybody else is just backing up. I mean, he even, he calls like a VP from the company who's on vacation, who literally could not care less, has zero interest. And to watch this guy who's totally unequipped for the situation, try to come up with some sort of answer because he recognizes the desperation of the situation you get the impression that that maybe is what's happening, you know, outside of your ambulance, outside of your chain of command, somewhere further up above in administration, you know, these sort of people who are like, uh, I mean, we've got spreadsheets to go over, dude. You know, like, <laughs> that is the perfect analogy about making eye contact. I mean, if you've ever been to a bar, you know that like no bartender is going to make eye contact with you until he's ready to take your order. You know, they, they, they're perfect at that, at, at avoiding all the people waving $20 bills and credit cards in their face to the moment that they've stopped, you know, mixing like the 17 Mai Tais that the bachelorette party next to you just ordered. One of the things I find interesting, and I'm curious to hear your point of view on this as someone who didn't read the book. So you're sort of, you know, just being thrust into this purely as a viewer of a television show, but we all have an understanding of Katrina. We remember 05, we remember 06, which is, I guess, like the aftermath, right? We have an understanding of what happened and we've seen the finger pointing and all that stuff that's come come through. What I find interesting, and you mentioned it in the beginning, is, and I hadn't thought about that until you said it, that memorial is really a microcosm of the larger event, of what happened. This city that was under siege by a hurricane, by flooding, by institutional malaise, by neglect, by a lack of planning on their own part, by a criminal underworld that was, you know, sort of running wild on the streets when once it was clear that, you know, the lights were out and nobody was minding the store. And so, you know, you hear the voice of a senator at one point from Louisiana saying, don't worry, we got it under control. You see the indifference from the people at Tenet 
who are saying either not our job or let the National Guard handle it. This is what they do. Uh, you see people, staff at this hospital saying, well, you're the incident commander. What should we do? You're seeing all these larger things that happen that we kind of remember through the eyes of these providers. As a viewer coming into this, how is all that, do you think, portrayed? Like, what what is your takeaway as someone sitting down watching this show and sort of having, you know, I mean, granted, we're all biased because we remember it again, but like being presented with like, this is the problem and these are its many layers of cause and effect. Like, I mean, how does all that hit you? There was no plan on any level. Very basic, just the hospital having a plan of, you know, what to do in the case of flooding in New Orleans, you know, to the mayor evacuating people after the storm's already begun or making a mandatory evacuation after the storm's already begun go as high as you want to the to the federal level of no plan. Honestly, it felt very, uh, this is kind of grim, but I'm, I'm not sure that we have improved any since then. So, you know, I'm thinking about uh, the pandemic, the freeze that happened here in Texas where the grid failed. It matches my cynical or um, pessimistic view of the idea that anyone has a plan. I think during the pandemic, we, we realized, I think the kids really realized it too, that the adults don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> and I know that's pessimistic, but it, it kind of matched. I'm like, yeah, of course all this happened. Like we've seen this play out even still today. I, I think you're right. And I, I'm going to just throw this out so you remember it because I want to come back to it. There's this weird um, Lord of the Flies aspect to all this. And don't, don't let me forget that. Cause I think maybe at some point we should return to that because, uh, you know, eventually these people are going to be pushed at crazy extremes and all of a sudden the skies will clear. And I've always wondered how must that feel when you've got, when you've gone to an extreme and then like the lights are flicked on and everything returns to normal. It's like, now you've got to explain what you did in an extreme moment to people who are not, uh, to people who are in a very calm state. I find that endlessly fascinating. Um, but I, I mean, I, I would love, <laughs> I would love to disagree with you, but, but boy, uh, I don't think that I can, you know, I don't know if you, you read the premonition, um, no. by Michael Lewis. I had no intention of reading any sort of pandemic, anything. I was sort of, you know, 2020 out. And then a friend of mine read it and said, you got to read it. And I'm fascinated by ID. ID uh, infectious disease. Yes. I recently took a micro class and I thought I was going to hate it. I loved it. I mean, I loved it, loved, loved it. So somebody said, you got to read this book. It's got a lot of infectious disease stuff and it's got, yes, it's pandemic, but it's like a bigger picture. In that story, there's you know about six people who are kind of the main characters who represent in various ways the United States response to you name it, whether that is COVID, whether that is anthrax, whether that is Ebola. Michael Lewis talks about how back during the presidency of George W. Bush, he read a book about um, while on vacation, the president reads this book about the flu of 1918 and returns from vacation and says like, hey, what would we do if that happened today? And the answer was like, nobody knows. So he says, we should do something. So experts are convened, work begins, but it never really gets completed and it isn't ever really embraced by subsequent administrations, you know, Bush leaves, Obama comes in. And of course, everybody from the Bush years leaves and everybody from the Obama years is unfamiliar with this pandemic plan. And so, you know, it kind of gets fumbled and then it gets fumbled again when, when Trump comes in, it gets defunded and it gets ignored. And, and so there's these people who are both within government and then in the civilian sphere who are, who are sort of realizing that a, um, nobody's paying attention to this and B, I guess I should do something. And they kind of find each other. And that's the the notion of the book, like the title, the premonition comes from the fact that like they were a handful of people who understood, Hey, something's coming and we're unprepared. And that book, you know, even I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years go by from the, from the first realization of, Oh, Hey, to when, coronavirus hits the US, nothing was done. We, 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 we got nowhere despite having some experts. 
these things like this, as they pop up, they just remind you, you know, of exactly what you just said. That nobody knows what the hell they're doing. And I do wonder, what is that? What does it say for your kids? Like, imagine if you were 10 mm-hmm. and your parents <laughs> were like, whoa, we're getting drunk and we're going to go driving. You'd be like, holy shit, these guys are crazy. Um, <laughs> I better pay. I better like buckle up and pay attention because mm-hmm. these guys don't have a clue. That's kind of what they're seeing on a larger scale. Like I would imagine my kids are 10 and 11 and I would imagine that the formative years of their lives showed to them that, Hey, nobody's got any idea. If the formative years of our parents' lives, because I'm assuming, you know, people our age, our parents probably, you know, sort of came of age in the late sixties or seventies. If they were tainted by Vietnam and Watergate and our grandparents, their view of the world came during World War II. Like think about how different all those perspectives are. You know, one is like capable to be trusted. One is like not to be trusted. And a third is like asleep at the wheel. So one of the things I've come to that I kind of the way I imagine all future events playing out is just like this, because maybe nothing was done because there's very little that can be done. Like we can't plan for every possibility. Like for Katrina, they didn't know those levees were going to break. They thought they were dealing with a hurricane. It turned out they were dealing with flooding. So it's very difficult to plan just like an EMS. You, you think you're going to go run a certain call, but you've got to pivot and deal with work with what you've got. Kind of where I've come to this is I think, and this happened for us during the freeze here in Austin, is that we assumed no one was going to, you know, if you call 911, no one can come. And people start basically helping neighbor to neighbor. And I think that will be, talking about our kids, that generation will realize like it's up to us. No one is coming. I think they got a good healthy dose of that in their childhood. I think about the, I think it's called the Cajun Army. Sure. Yeah. 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 And these, these were just uh, civilians, right? During Mm -hmm. Katrina that went around on boats helping people. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if they existed beforehand or if that was kind of an organic grassroots thing that happened. Do you know? I would imagine that to some degree, this Cajun Navy probably has always existed because Mm -hmm. there's probably always been a need for a network of local people to help one another out. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe the name was coined later or maybe Mm. it's sort of, you know, that part I, I couldn't tell you, but surely if you're from Bay St. Louis, you were aware of a need or biolabatry, like you are aware of a need um, for, you know, your neighbors to help you and vice versa. So probably, but. Yeah. They kind of gave us a prototype of what it could look like where everyday citizens band together to just go outside their house and start helping their neighbors. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. You know, I mean, maybe that's the hopeful thing to take from this because, you know, I think you're letting too, too many people off the hook when you say that nobody knew, you know, I mean, supposedly the Corps of Engineers had been saying, like, hey, these levees are, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of being pushed to the limit. You would think that uh, a hospital that sits three feet below water level, you know, that's one of the things that you find out very quickly in this show is that, and again, they do such a great job of building this this sense of dread. You know, it, if, if a horror movie really is, is not like scares, but this like, sense of foreboding and dread and and like that something bad is coming. If that's really what makes a horror movie so great, then that's kind of what also makes a thriller great. And this show exists very well as a thriller and they do a wonderful job almost from the moment that the show starts of building this dread in you because you know, something is coming and the way they do is like showing you all the vulnerabilities. There's the rain and the wind beating on the windows. And somebody says, this hospital is three feet below sea level. Our generators, our water, our medicine, all these pets are being kept in the basement. (laughs) And it's only going to take four feet of water for all that to be dead, for the generators to go out, the water to be spoiled, the medicine to be flooded, and the pets to drown. And you know that instantly. So surely people had to know, oh, man, this this hospital is is like really uh, susceptible to you know, even a minor calamity, you know, that's kind of the point of Michael Lewis's book, The Premonition. There were enough smart people who were aware that, hey, there's nobody with a plan for what to do in the event of Ebola really, you know, 
raging through here or swine flu or H1N1 or you name the thing. It's that inactivity that I think is both frustrating and kind of bewildering. I always thought that one of the sad statements of people is that we're more driven by fear than we are by reward. But I guess I have to kind of amend that to a degree because these are all fear-based things that should have drawn, if, if my thesis was correct, that should have drawn a reaction and didn't. I think it's too far out in the future. The show alludes to this when the facilities manager who's making it clear to everyone, he knows, he knows exactly when things are going to mess up. And it's at four feet when, when they get four feet of water in that building. You know, one of the upper level executives says, well, why is this the first we've heard of it? He said, it's not. I, I sent a memorandum the last time, you know, and this kicking, kicking the can down the road is maybe because there's just not the immediacy to, in preparation, it, that villain is not right on your door, you know, months, years in advance. Yeah, I wonder why we don't, as a species, have any sense of that. Like, I look at my dog. He doesn't prepare. You know, if I feed him, <laughs> he eats it. <laughs> if I give him water, he drinks it. I shut the, you know, I shut the door on him, and he's like, that's it, I'm here forever. <laughs> um, he doesn't prepare for a disaster, but he doesn't know what planet he's on. We, <laughs> theoretically, we should be so much better at this than a dog. And yet we're completely not like we do not have the ability to use the foresight, which we have. Everybody knows it. It's not like we lack the ability. We have the ability, but we don't do anything with it. I, I find that, um, I don't know. It's so strange. Like what a weird, maybe that's all part of the, like they say that the reason we're able to get past the existential dread of knowing that we're going to die by this like dissociative property in our brain where we can separate the inevitable from the momentary. And maybe that's our problem. Maybe it's both like a help and a hindrance. Right. I think you just nailed it. Mm. So sad. It's a medical drama, but most of what we see in the first three episodes is a logistical drama, if you will. Sure. Um, but, but towards the end of Day three, episode three, we finally get to see medical care being provided. I mean, we see some things like hand-holding and putting on a pulse ox early on and the, the nursing care by the bedside that's more of a calm, reassure, hydration type stuff. But we finally get to see a cardiac arrest. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't love it for one very specific reason, and that is the uh, the chest compressions were crap. <laughs> and I find it highly unethical for TV shows to, that is an opportunity to sh at least show that hundreds of thousands of viewers what proper compressions looks like. And it, it's just an oh, ethical wow. failure. Like they're, they're not, why not just show it right? I never, that's a really great point. <clears throat> I never would have looked at it from that perspective because you're right. You know, when I was writing on Code Black, we had an episode in which Rob Lowe busts out um, a tourniquet and it's, it was specifically a PSA for stop the bleed. They came to us and said, Hey, here's all of our stuff. Like, here's our, here's our verbiage. Here's our equipment. Here are the signs we're trying to put in places. Like, can you guys incorporate this? And so there's a moment in the show where, where they do that. And it became a, a PSA thing. I'd never thought of CPR as a PSA, but you're, you're right. It is. And here's the frustrating thing. They have equipment that can do this. So you can put a, like a prosthetic on someone that gives you a certain number of inches of give. Mm. You could actually do CPR without actually compressing the chest. So you can do it. It's possible. Plus, I mean, we're all aware that these actors aren't being shot or stabbed or eaten by sharks. So you could also use a dummy and actually do the, because they have a dummy. Clearly there's a moment where you see this guy being intubated. I won't get into the part where he actually intubates him because it gets very wonky and terrible at that point. But <laughs> why won't you get into it? You'll just let people go go watch it for themselves. We'll, we'll get into it. All right. Well, fine. <laughs> we'll get into it. But it starts out with the laryngoscope, and you see a physician comes in. Which, um, by the way, I do love the fact that they're all screaming for a doctor. All these nurses and they're screaming for a doctor. And I don't like to be petty, but. Uh, 
I do kind of like, you know, if you guys had a paramedic or two, they probably could drop a tube really quick. Um, <laughs> but the doctor arrives. They have to go to a different floor to get a doctor. And again, like, hey, you, you, your pod could totally have a medic. So the doctor arrives and pulls out the laryngoscope and, you know, sticks the blade in, like holds it in the left hand, sweeps to the left, like doesn't rock. Like they go deep. Clearly they had a dummy because there's no way that you're sticking that down somebody's throat. So they, they could have done better compressions. I, uh, that part I liked when I saw that, I was like, Oh wow, look at that. They're really, like, they're really getting in there at that blade. This is really, I didn't expect them to get that realistic with the blade then. So <laughs> you wanted to talk about it. They, <laughs> I think they say like, like hand me a whatever. I think they're, you know, give me a seven and a half or whatever. Uh-huh. Which, you know, again, like, are you, you didn't prepare that ahead of time? <laughs> you're just sticking your, your three Mac down someone's throat without. I think without. it was a four Mac. That thing was dinosaur sized, or it maybe was, the perspective of the, the it camera. It might have been, it might have been a four Mac. It was a very, <laughs> it was a big blade and the whole neck moves. That person was, was visualizing all the way down to the, to the butt. Um, the tube arrives and it's sort of like, slipped in, which whatever, you know, you're like, they don't, you know, but that's it. They don't, um, after being very realistic and, and graphic with the laryngoscope blade, nobody inflates a cuff. Nobody checks breath sounds, the tube, they don't bother to tie it. Like they're moving it. Like the bag is the BVM is being slung everywhere. So that tube is like, you know, it's going, it's going from, from main stem to stomach back and forth <laughs> you know, rapidly. Um, it, but does anybody else care about that? Like I, we watch that and we think, oof. But I, you know, the the rest of the world doesn't know, with the exception of your compressions. I like your point there. Yeah, it's an opportunity. If we're going to talk things that annoy us about medical adaptations, <laughs> I, I can. This will be um, part two because it's going to be a whole other hour. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, it could go right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I can look past the tube. And I can sort of look past the poor compressions, and though not anymore, because I think you make such a great point. I think you're right. That is a wonderful chance to show the world how to do it. These are big budget productions. Television is not a cheap thing to make. Y'all can get a better stethoscope. If I see one more $19 dual lumen, cheap ass EMT basic stethoscope that's missing drums around a doctor's neck, I'm going to strangle someone. If you want to be realistic, and they they clearly do, because there's a lot of veracity in in, in many aspects of it, like get the one piece of equipment that you show nonstop from start to finish of the show. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the stethoscopes, but I'll have to I'll have to watch the upcoming episodes for that. <laughs> yeah, because you know every medical show you they've got to be around their neck, gotta can't be. be in the lab coat pocket, <laughs> and um, got to be like playing with them, twirling them. You know, there, there's. It's sort of like the the glasses. You know, like some actors really act with glasses. Robert Downey Jr. is perhaps like maybe the most graphic smoker of all time. Like the way he lights a cigarette. Like, I mean, it, it's a whole show just watching him smoke. <laughs> That's how they are with these stethoscopes. Get a good one. Knowing what you know, because you you yourself have you were basically like a medical consult to help people make medical dramas good. What or were you writing? No, I was writing. Um, somebody, there was a television show that reached out to me to be a consultant, but they wanted a physician. And so I said, no, uh, I, uh, I was writing, but you know, when my episodes were in production, you know, I would be on set and, and, and then, uh, also when you're writing and breaking stories, you know, it's a room full of people who are writers, not medical providers. So they'll kind of turn to you and say, what is a cool thing? that happens with blank. And of course, you know, because medicine people are medicine people. I'm always like, well, what's stuck in his butt? You know, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's always where I want to go. That's always where I want to go. Man, you know, way behind the curtain, what that looks like. You've now read Sherry Fink's book and watched the portrayal on TV. Uh, you yourself have a book, A Thousand Naked Strangers, and another book coming out, American Sirens. Would you ever agree to someone making a show out of either of those books? Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> it would 
depend entirely on on who and where. Um, you know, Naked Strangers has been purchased many times, um, and you know, every time I have been attached as a writer on that process, the farthest we made it was uh, it sold to a streamer and then died during the pandemic because they, you know, they said, Hey, look, nobody's ever going to laugh at medicine again after this, which is the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. But that was all right. Those things happen. I th- it's a good enough story that I think someday it will find its home. Some, you know, at some point, um, you know, American sirens is such a different animal. So I'll address that separately, but in terms of strangers, hundred percent, because I think it's a, it's a world that deserves to be told. I think, you know, when I wrote in the book about being angry about the fact that when there's a car accident or some sort of disaster somewhere that the local news refers to fire police and other emergency personnel, you know, my frustration over that very derogative or dismissive other emergency personnel, you know, stemming from the fact that the quote unquote other emergency personnel were the ones who did 98% of the work on that scene. They're the reason that your grandmother is here right now. That frustration over just people not knowing who it is that's, that's on an ambulance and, and the, the incredible work that they're doing, like how hard it is and how thankless it is. Uh, I think that the story deserves to be told and deserves to be told like in a funny way, in a ridiculous way. We need the moment where two paramedics are standing over a dead body arguing over where they're going to go to lunch in 20 minutes, you know, like that, the Fargo version of that story needs to be told, but I would want to be involved in it for, for the, like kind of the, some of the stuff that we've been discussing, you know, like we don't need another show where somebody screams like nobody dies on my watch. We don't need another show where, where some, you know, actor is willing to get fired for, you know, illegally treating a patient, you know, doing surgery in the field or like we've seen that, like we don't, we don't need that overly heroic square jawed version of it anymore. Like, I think we want the, the warts and all funny version, crazy version, realistic version, heroic, like all that stuff wound into one very complicated, messy person who's making $15 an hour and has too many tattoos and a brand new car. And, you know, it's like strung out on monster energy drinks and, and, you know, just like, where, where, where's that person? And, um, and where, where's that person in the story? So yeah, I, I would love to see that told, but told correctly. Um, American Sirens is a completely different thing. The story is about how in 1968, the height of the civil rights movement, 24 African-Americans from the city of Pittsburgh lead this medical revolution by becoming the world's first paramedics. And, you know, all the sort of baggage that surrounds that thing and sort of everything that spawned from it, it, the difficulties, the victories, the defeats, everything that, you know, and and sort of its its longer legacy. That particular story, that's definitely not, that's not my story. You know, from the moment I started writing that, I considered myself, and I I don't, this is going to sound very highfalutin. I don't mean it that way. But I just considered myself like a steward of a larger venture. This was a bigger story, an important story, and an overlooked and forgotten story. And they were quite literally people who died waiting for the world to take notice of what they had done. In that regard, everything that comes out to highlight this story and to bring the names of the people involved and the work of the people involved, the effort, the, the incredible... Uh, just the the unbelievable ability of everyone there to do what they did in the face of all that they they had to stare down that needs to be told in, in any way. So I would never, unlike Strangers, which is a very personal story, Siren is one that just the world needs to see. It's been optioned. Where that option stands or what's happening with it, I, I don't know. You know, the, the people who did it are, you know, off somewhere and. Hollywood land, whatever it is that they're doing. So hopefully something will come of it, but we shall see. I don't know. Well, I know many in the EMS community would want that to happen because they trust you. You are one of our best storytellers with your name on it. I know a lot of people would be very thankful that you're the one creating this portrayal or representation of the profession. So I hope that happens. 
me too. I, I appreciate that. I don't, you know, that's a, uh, feels like a heavy mantle to carry, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it would be, it would be fantastic. Certainly overdue. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's nice that we're in a place where that can happen. You know, the, the truth is when I first started doing television stuff, somebody said to me, you know, was, was giving me advice on, on these, you know, stories that I was pitching and, they were like, set it in the U.S. because it's a, it's a setting that an American audience can kind of wrap their heads around and, and make your main character white because, like, that's kind of where viewers are. That's who viewers are. You know, they if you make your main character black, then it becomes a black show. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, nothing more needs to be said about that. We are at a point where, you know, people – can pick up a story like American Sirens and recognize it as, yes, a story that has race at its core, but is also a profoundly American story. And I think we're kind of creeping toward a world in which that's how we look at it. Um, and that's only to uh, the benefit of all of us. So I haven't read your book, but I have pre-ordered it on Amazon. But he- hearing you describe it, and I've read your article that you wrote. Uh, and was it in the Atlantic? Where was that? Uh, the Atavist. It reminds me of Hidden Figures. Mm. Yeah, I uh, I can't disagree with you there. I mean, didn't we all watch that movie and think like, is this true? This can't be true. Is this true? Right. It was um, the first I've heard of it. I'm like, wait, no one's ever told me about this. Right. How did how did we have uh, you know all these movies and and nobody before like. Even if that wasn't the story, shouldn't someone who sort of represented that woman have been somewhere in the background so you could look at it and go, hey, look, there, there, there she was. There she was doing her thing. It is surprising that, that it went so long before somebody, something so big, you know, like it doesn't get much bigger than that. Um, and, and yet it hadn't been told. So, yeah, I, I, I agree. There's something Hidden Figures-esque about it because it is this like unbelievable story that somehow we we don't know was there and and is kind of like both infuriating but also very uplifting um in its own way even though you know the the story doesn't always have it it doesn't have every element of a happy ending the people involved went on to do incredible things um and there's a reason that they were trailblazers uh, and and also successful later you know i mean they they had certain traits that made them exceptional Mm mm-hmm so are you going to watch the rest of the episodes of Five Days at Memorial? Yeah, I can't wait. I I wondered at first, are there going to be five episodes since we're saying five days? Because they got to day three, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. But it looks like there's going to be maybe a few more, so I guess we'll get some sort of post thing, which that to me is a part I, I get squeamish about. At some point, we're going to have to return in a calm state to pass judgment on decisions and actions made and taken in a desperate state. And that I think is going to be an interesting, I look forward to that conversation because uh, like, how do you judge in hindsight what you did in those kind of moments um, knowing the outcome? And, and it, it's going to be very, it'll be interesting to see how, how that is treated because, you know, that's, that's the moral conundrum of this story, you know? I think it's going to be hard to watch because it's going to remind me of after action reviews where you say, that, mm-hmm. as you're kind of alluding to, the, all the lights are on now, everyone's wearing clean clothes, and we're talking about something that we almost in a blink of an eye, we can't relate to it anymore. It's like that was a different world. Uh-huh. So on that EMS call, or you almost, you, the paramedic, can't even remember your frame because it's just you're, you're in a frame of mind that's not reproducible in, as you said, calm daily life. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt a little bit, I think, to watch that. I'm with you. It's, it's hard. I had the same. I think that's really what Sully was about. You know, how do you, how do you reckon with this decision that was made in a split second um, when we do not live in a world in which things are judged in a split second manner? How does it all shake out? How do we look at a guy who, despite the fact of having saved lives, maybe broke every protocol that, that has ever existed. And yet, isn't that stuff important? You know, I mean, does anybody really think, anybody worth their salt really think that QA, QI is not important, that after action reports are not important, that we need to sit down and say like, hey, what do we do right? What do we do wrong? And if there is blame to go around, like to whom do we assign it? 
those feel like important things. And yet on an emotional level, it's, it's, it's going to be hard to get behind it because you can imagine they've, they've done a great job. And this again, how we started, they've done a great job of putting you in this very desperate cloistered situation where you have almost no information and you don't have anything that you really need. And yet decisions are coming at you. You're the incident commander, your patient's dying. What are you going to do? Thanks for the chat. I enjoyed it so much. No, thank you. You are the greatest. You're the greatest. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we'll see if you have time for part two, where we can talk about the rest of the episodes. I know you've got a lot coming up with the release of the book in September. So if you get time, maybe you can swing by for an hour chat. I've always got time. Always got time. All right. Thanks, Kevin. For years, I've encouraged paramedics to get degrees. But when I carefully listened to the stories of paramedics, I realized there are challenges that have to be addressed. Things like 2448s, childcare, mortgages. I'm pleased to share that I have an answer that matches what I know about the working paramedic who tells me they are ready to pursue a degree. Eastern Kentucky University offers a bachelor's in emergency medical care that is 100% online and allows college credit for existing state or national registry certifications. EKU is a nationally known program, and I trust them to take good care of Medic Mindset listeners who want to start their journey toward a degree. You can go to the show notes for this episode for a link or simply use go.eku.edu backslash medic to get started. Well, let's talk about it. You want to? Let's do this. I watched it again yesterday, by the way. All three? Yeah. Each one's only like 45 minutes, and I was just, there was a storm here in Austin. So I was like, oh, this is perfect. I'll watch it during a storm. Did that affect your viewing? No. The first time I watched it, I had COVID, so I think it actually felt more intense during the COVID watching because I was sick and just felt more like in touch with the pandemic experience. <laughs> I would feel claustrophobic if I had COVID and I watched that. Uh-huh. Uh huh. It, it might be a bridge too far for me. 